to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Welcome to you all. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Welcome. Uh, we have as our guest today uh, Farnaz Fasihi. Is that the correct? That's correct. <laughs> uh, who is uh, Iranian American, um, spent a lot of her childhood in Iran, and has spent a great deal of her career since 9 11 in the Middle East working for the Wall Street Journal. She's now a Neiman Fellow here. Um, I think without question, her area of expertise and coverage is the, you know, the centerpiece of, uh, of journalism at the moment uh, in terms of foreign affairs and conflict and just about every other dimension you could name. The papers this morning, the news in uh, Yemen is something that, you know, filled me with confusion and I was asking uh, Farnaz about it beforehand and she's going to explain all of it. She'll make it quite clear <laughs> and make it all make perfect sense. Uh, Farnaz, we're very glad to Thank have you Thank you very here. much. There's a joke in the Middle East that if you ever think you understand what's going on, you truly don't know anything. <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for having me, Alex, and thank you all for coming. I've, um, I'm going to speak a little bit about sort of how I got to the Middle East and, um, and sort of how covering the Middle East and by default covering wars um, has changed in the past 13 years that I've, I've been overseas. Um, unfortunately, um, when you say I'm, I cover the Middle East, by default it means you cover wars and uprisings. It's, it's hard to escape that. Um, I um, uh, spent, I was a, a kind of a local news investigative, really, reporter in, in New Jersey working for the Star-Ledger, um, which is New Jersey's main daily uh, paper, when 9-11 happened. And um, like many reporters, I rushed to the scene um, of, of the attacks on the World Trade Center. Um, and when it became clear in a few weeks that um, the U.S. was going to attack Afghanistan, I uh, went to the to my editors and I raised my hand and insisted that they sent me um, to cover um, uh, the war in Afghanistan. I spoke Farsi. I kind of knew the culture, and I'd always wanted to um, to, to cover wars. I, I don't know why. I think perhaps it's because I my my own um, personal trajectory uh, had been altered by um, a revolution in Iran when I was eight years old uh, and war with Iraq, and it you know it. It made my family immigrate to the U.S., so these things were very much a central part of my identity and, and, and something that I had uh, kind of grown up with, and I, I think I wanted to make sense of it as a reporter. Um, so I, uh, I think it was October, uh, first weeks of October of 2011, 2001, I got shipped to Afghanistan, and um, I never came back home until now. This is the first time that I'm actually... Uh, thanks to the Neiman Foundation um, back living in the U.S. Um, and it's been a, a, a tremendous um, experience as a reporter and as a person, but, but also very heartbreaking um, uh, and, and traumatic because of the events that have happened. Um, from Afghanistan, I went, um, uh, I, I went to cover um, uh, the Second Intifada uh, in, in Israel uh, with the and the Palestinian authorities in Gaza the Iraq invasion. I was um, the Baghdad bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal from 2000. Um, so in, in between, I, I went from the Star Ledger 
uh, to the Wall Street Journal a, a year later, and they posted me um, in Baghdad as the bureau chief. I was there from 2003 until 2006, um, and then went to Beirut, where um, I uh, lived and had a base until I came here. Uh, and in the process covered uh, all the other events, the Iranian uprising, the, the Israeli-Lebanese war um, in 2006, the Arab Spring, and so it's been a very eventful, um, eventful decade. Um, what we've done, how we approach our journalism and how we approach our reporting has uh, significantly changed. Part of that is because of security, because um, News organizations are, are extremely worried about um, getting the reporters kidnapped and killed. So um, there, there's there's um, a much much more um, I think sort of caution applied by decisions of who do we send where and, and where do we go than than when I started out. I basically after 9/11 there was no question that I would just pick a backpack pick up a backpack with a uh, with a small satellite phone um, and go off um, into Afghanistan and sort of improvise my way uh, to Kabul any way I could. And now we have reporters armed with GPS tractors and satellite phones and, and this and that and security guards to accompany you into war zones. And so it's it's changed uh, a lot. And sometimes we don't even go. I mean, in, in the case of um, the rebel-controlled territories of Syria, um, we no longer send a reporter there. The journal hasn't had a reporter there for, I think, at least two years. Um, so some areas have become no-go zone. Um, that This has taken some of the serendipity, I think, out of reporting, out of what we do. It's also taken, um, uh, it's, it's also made it a lot harder for us um, to really see what's happening on the ground. Because if you don't have access, if you can't really see um, for yourself what's happening, you have to rely on uh, information that you get from various sources, and most of them have an agenda. I mean, even the videos that we get from Syria, the tweets that we get, they're mostly from activists. It takes a lot of time to try to verify them, to try to figure out um, if, if what we're about to report is really accurate. Combining, in combination with the security, news organizations have also moved um, to uh, this digital first, mobile first, get the news out quickly, 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 putting more pressure on the reporters to turn things around. Um, so um, I think the result has been, um, um, I think, reporting that um, uh, is less original, perhaps. Um, than, than it was per a, a decade ago because um, when you're on the ground you, you perhaps see the events and you talk to different people and, and you look at events in a different way but if you're sitting behind your desk in Beirut as many of us do covering Syria you all get the same YouTube feed you all get the same Twitter feed you're talking the same sources so the pieces that you put out kind of cancel each other out which has been a, a, a challenge in trying to really figure out how uh, as the story becomes more and more complicated in the Middle East, how to approach this, how to, uh, how to um, make readers care, how to put a face on this human tragedy that is now um, sort of from, the, you know, from Yemen to Egypt to um, Libya and Syria and Iraq. And, um, you know, and I think p partly our readers in the U.S. Are, uh, are have kind of um, t are tired of, of reading and hearing about um, all the events that are going wrong. Uh, but on the other hand, the U.S. Um, the U.S. invasion of, of Iraq 
uh, has gotten us to where we are today. I think that you, we can't as Americans and as American journalists um, ignore this, this fact. Uh, you know. So I think there's, a, there's more responsibility on our part as American news organizations uh, to try to stay on the ground, to try to make sense of what's happening, um, and to try to cover it. Um, you know, Al-Qaeda did not have a presence in Iraq and Syria before the U.S. invasion of Iraq. It, it, it was mainly in Afghanistan, uh, uh, and um, it, it got a base in Syria. They were bringing militants in to fight the Americans. It gave them a good excuse and a breeding ground. And, um, you know, we have what we have today. We, we no longer have uh, an isolated crisis in Syria, we now have an entire region up in arms in a, in a very sectarian Shia versus Sunni uh, war that's confusing because each country has its own dynamics. You mentioned Yemen. Um, Yemen is a very tribal society. Um, much. Um, it's hard for us to understand how these tribes work, the tribal loyalties. There's money coming in from Iran to support the Shia tribes. There's money and weapons coming in from Saudi Arabia. So you have, in addition to what's happening locally in a country, these in, uh, bigger regional dynamics um, uh, and power plays um, between sort of the, the, the big power plays of Iran, Egypt, uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, the US, uh, Israel, um, making it all the more complicated uh, to do what, what we try to do. Um, when I started out, we, um, even in Iraq, I would just get in a car and go where I had to go with a very small team of a driver and a translator and talk to people. Most of my coverage in the past 13 years uh, has been focused on trying to um, put a, a human face on war. I, I wrote a book about Iraq which um, tracked sort of how the lives of ordinary Iraqis had unraveled because I felt there was too much coverage on the political side of the war and, and on the military side of the war and much less on, on what was happening to the people. I have a very hard time now trying to replicate that mission as a journalist when it comes to Syria, when it comes to Yemen, because I'm not there. Mm -hmm. and. Um, um, it's, it can be extremely frustrating uh, as a reporter, uh, not just me, but for all of my colleagues to try to understand um, and really figure out what, what's happening. I mean, if you're not on the ground spending time with the rebels, you're not going to understand how they went from being a small kind of pro-democracy, um, anti-Assad rebel to one of the most extremist branches of um, you know, militant Islam now engulfing the entire Middle East. Um, as a result of this sort of not being on the ground, sometimes the media misses something. We all miss the takeover of Mosul. Um, although we had been following ISIS, we knew that they had made in inroads into Iraq, they'd taken over Fallujah. But when Mosul fell, um, everybody was shocked, uh, including us. Um, and, and I think it was because of our lack of access. Um, so these are some of the very real challenges that we uh, deal with um, uh, in, in terms of um, covering the Middle East. In terms of where the Middle East is going, I'm, I'm not optimistic at all. I mean, I've kind of watched the region go in cycles for the past 13 years, and it's pretty much the same themes. You know, it's uh, extremists versus um, 
pro-democracy, pro pro-Western, or it's uh, Shias against Sunnis, it's pro-Iran against pro-Saudi, pro it's pro-Americans against anti-Americans. The same forces seem to be um, uh, kind of going in cycles all the way from Afghanistan to now Yemen and uh, back in Iraq. I mean, I think one of the tra great tragedies uh, now is, is how Iraq is falling apart. Um, and, um, you know, I, I'm, I don't have an answer on what, what is the right thing, what, what is the right thing, or what's, what's the way out of this. Um, but uh, but I, I do feel that, that there is some level of responsibility that the U.S. has and, and we have as American journalists. Um, so that's it. Well, me, I'd let, like to open let, it up let to me, Let me ask you a couple of questions, and then we'll open it up yeah. broadly. Um, if you were advising the president about what <laughs> role the, New the United States should, should take, uh, I mean, it's sometimes it seems that no matter what the United States does, it, it's going to be counterproductive. There is no positive action that the United States can take. In, no, in, that may be overstating it. What would you advise the president to do if you were trying to at least have the least worst path? That's a tough question. Um, I think that the U.S. got involved too late in Syria. I think that um, we missed the window where we could have had real influence on, on the rebels and, uh, and on these forces. We, we, uh, there, I think the U.S. was um, so traumatized by Iraq, by what had happened in Afghanistan and Iraq, that it did not want to be blamed for another Arab state's disintegration into chaos. Um, and I think so we, I think we missed that window of, of trying to identify and um, nurture um, the forces that may have been more um, sort of pro-West or uh, more moderate, if you may. Uh, at this point, I don't know what, I, I really don't know what they can do. I think that America's involvement is, is always a double-edged sword. I think that if you don't go in, people blame you and say that, um, you know, you're, you're letting extremists win and you're uh, kind of looking the other way. But if you do go in, then, then you're also giving excuse to groups like ISIS um, uh, and another reason for them to radicalize because now they, they can say we're also fighting the U.S. It's no longer just a local war. But doing nothing, I think, is also not... I don't, know. I don't have the answer, Alex. I think it's a, it's. I think this is this okay, is probably well, let's, the let, let me ask hardest. It, let me ask it a different way. Let's assume that we do nothing. Mm -hmm. What happens? If we do nothing, what yep. happens? Um, you will have uh, you will have uh, countries in the Middle East turn into what Afghanistan was before <coughs> the U.S. invasion. You will have states disintegrating. You'll have um, uh, institutional um, breakdown of. Um, Iraq and Syria and, um, you know, further out, like we're seeing in Yemen and, and, and Libya, um, I think the conflict might spread. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a region that the U.S. Has, has a lot of interest. I mean, there's the oil in the Middle East. <laughs> uh, there's <coughs> Israel in the Middle East, which the U.S. Has, um, wants to protect, and this could threaten the Jewish state. So I think doing nothing is... Uh, could leave the door open for, um, it, if we do nothing also, then we have to accept the fact that, that the Islamic <coughs> Republic 
will become a major power player. It, it already is a major power player. Um, without Iran, um, the U.S. could not fight ISIS. I mean, the U.S. is supporting aerial, um, kind of has aerial supports and uh, bombarding these positions. But on the ground, the Shia militia is being led by the Revolutionary Guards of Iran. So if we do nothing, then, then we have to also accept the fact that our influence is, is just going to diminish even further, as will our credibility. And so why are the other Islamic Muslim states Saudi Arabia in particular, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, uh, Kuwait, Jordan, right. whatever. Why are they not as fearful of ISIS as we are? They're fearful of ISIS. Well, why are they not fighting ISIS? Um, I think that they, well, they're, I'm not, they're fighting ISIS in a, in a different, you know, they're fighting ISIS, but there's some of them are also funding ISIS, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, the Saudis are, are Sunni. The Saudis, there are many Saudi businessmen, uh, Qatari businessmen, Kuwaiti businessmen, who have funded and armed ISIS, and uh, and have led to the um, sort of you know these extremist groups being able to branch off. Um, a lot of private donations are coming in. I, th I think that they uh, they are fearful. I think Saudi Arabia is very fearful. Iran is very fearful. That's why they're in in Iraq leading the show, and in Syria. Um, uh, trying to get the upper hand on, on what's happening because they don't want this spilling over their borders. Saudi Arabia now has a very real rival. You know, you have uh, al-Baghdadi declaring himself the Khalifa of the Muslim world, and this is a role that's traditionally been for the Saudi so royal family. why do the Saudis allow their citizens to f support them then? I... Bad I, mean, politics I, I, in I guess least, I found I, I think, find yeah. the Saudis the most per perplexing, perplexing ones, yes. Uh, because it would seem that they should recognize that ISIS wishes them dead just as much as they wish the United States dead. Yes, but on the other hand, the Saudis are equally, um, I think, fearful of um, Shia dominance, uh, of of Iran gaining more power, of Iraqi Shias controlling the area of um, sort of Assad. One of the reasons they've been funding the rebels is because they wanted to diminish Assad. Assad is an Alawite. It's an offshoot of, 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 of Shia Islam, and he's very close to Iran. So I think they, you know, after the U.S. invasion, we saw um, sort of a Shia revival all the way from Iran to Iraq to Lebanon to Syria, you know, what the so-called sort of Shia crescent. Which, which was a real threat to, to Sunni dominance uh, of the Middle East. And uh, a lot of, I think, what has led the Sunni countries or, or uh, private donations or however funding has come for these rebels, and it's not just to ISIS, it's also they've been doing, this has been happening in, in Iraq all along, and it, it was to push back on this. It was to try to um, unravel what had happened uh, because of the Iraq invasion. This is a. This is, these are this, you this, know, this old thousands of years rivalries between well, see, these this nations. Is, this, this is this is one of the profound questions that that someone from the West will ask mm -hmm. was asked and and uh, may seem incredibly naive to you. But yeah. why do these Sunni cultures and Shia cultures have such incredible animosity mm -hmm. for each other? to the point of reminding us in the West of the Thirty Years' War. Right, absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and yeah. in which Germany lost 40% of right. its population. Right. Uh, what is it that that is so 
is, is it is it something that if you are a Muslim, you feel profoundly, you know, that you are Shia, that you are Sunni, not that you are Muslim in a kind of a, of a you know, we're all Muslims, but we have different flavors. So sectarian identity is, is very um, strong in the Middle East. Um, also, um, in many countries, like in like in Iraq, uh, the Shias were uh, oppressed mm -hmm. for many, many marginalized and oppressed for many, many years. In Lebanon, um, if it, the government really doesn't take care of the Shia population, if if it weren't for you know Hezbollah is, is a terrorist group, but it's also a political group. It also has hospitals and orphanages, and it you know rebuilds the the neighborhoods that Israel bombs in a way that the government does not. So this is this has led, um, I think, um, to each community feeling that they really have to fend for their, themselves and really have to rally behind their sectarian identity. Um, and um, you know, I think one of the things we're seeing in the Middle East is 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 this idea that this is no longer just uh, a Shia Sunni war isolated to, to country. It is a regional war. People are fighters are coming in from all over. You have fighters coming from Chechnya, fighters coming from you know uh, um, all, all the way from Europe to sort of defend this Sunni identity. Um, in Syria, you've got um, you know from Shia Afghans, Shia uh, Yemenites, um, Iranians, everybody going. So it's become this theater where, um, and now expanded to Iraq, where all these um, issues that have been suppressed for hundreds of years are, are erupting. And I, I don't think we can necessarily crush it. I, and I, I, I think that um, going back to your question of what you would advise um, the president, or you know, I, I sometimes think that you know, with a uh, hundred thousand boots on the ground and trillions of dollars, um, the U.S. was unable w in Afghanistan and in Iraq. The U.S. was unable to keep Al Qaeda in check, uh, and it has now led to. Uh, a terrorist group called ISIS, which is far more radicalized, far more extremist than Al Qaeda. I mean, Al Qaeda doesn't even want to have anything to do with these guys. <laughs> so, um, so it, it leaves the question: What are we trying to accomplish? So, will aerial bombardments or funding is this going to really turn things around? I I, I doubt it. Well, so are we headed for a genocide of either Sunnis or Shia? There's genocide happening in Syria already. I mean, uh, you know, over 100,000 people killed on <laughs> both sides. I mean, there's, they're killing each other. There's, you know, there, uh, we have reports of ISIS militants going into villages and, and burning people. And on the other side too. I mean, it's it's both ways. You know, chemical attacks of, of Sunnis and then you know mass murder of of um, Alawites and, um, and in Iraq is the same. So. <laughs> Sorry, but if this is a very sort of <laughs> well, I mean, it, it sounds as though there's really nothing to be done. No, I don't. And think nothing to be done. The United States is impotent because no matter what it does, it would be only it would be it would be a waste. I have to say, I've, given what you've said, I'm not sure that the United States going into Syria any time would have been productive for any period of time more than. Definitely not sure. on the grounds. I, I think maybe if they'd been more active at the very beginning, um, maybe they could have influenced things one way or the other. Uh, but they didn't, so that's... Um, <laughs> well, let me open this now to first students. If you're a student and you have a question, yes. Yeah. Hi, uh, my Hi. name is 
Fatima, I'm a, a mid-career year student here um, at the Kennedy School, and I was also a former journalist with the Yemen Times. Oh, from Yemen. So you're from Yemen, so, so you can tell us um, what's happening. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> yeah. um, and I wanted to ask you, um, as, as a reporter, as a journalist, when, when you go and report in war zones, how do you maintain your sanity? Um, <laughs> how do you... Question. Yeah, that's... Uh, so, so that was one, one part of us. I'm really interested in knowing how do you deal with that, especially that you've lived continuously for mm -hmm. 10 years um, away. The second is um, I was intrigued by um, the issue of the agendas. Mm -hmm. And I also think that as a reporter, you also have your own agenda. How do you balance that with what's going on in the ground? So yeah. I'll, I'll address the first one. I don't think we have agendas as reporters, but I do think that we we're also not laptops, right? So we're human beings. We have we formulate opinions. We've um, you know we hear things, we see things. So we um, I don't think we have an agenda. To, to if I'm writing a story about Yemen, I don't have a particular agenda. Um, but it uh, it depends on the information that we're getting. You know, sometimes we don't get equal information from both sides. If if a story seems to to gear more. Uh, I wouldn't even say sympathetic, but if we have more information from one side to the other, sometimes that, that can reflect in, in the story. Uh, but um, I, I, I don't think that we have an agenda. I think we try really hard to, um, to see through the, um, the information we're getting and, and the feeds we're getting from, from people on the ground. Like I, I write about Yemen with the help of a Yemeni journalist who, who's our stringer. And I've developed, you know, we've developed a relationship with him over the years, so we trust what he says. Um, but if I'm calling uh, a source in Yemen, then I have to make sure that I verify that with people who know the story to say, is this really what's happening? Are they trying to push, is somebody trying to push an agenda onto us? And it's very hard to do that on deadline. Um, in terms of how you keep saying, um, you know, it's, uh, we have a, um, there's not a whole lot of us who do this. It's it's a pretty small group. I would say maybe 40 or 50. I think I kind of 9/11 created a, a new generation of war um, correspondents, and um, most of us were around the same age. And we've gone from one war zone to the next with one another. So we have these intense bonds and friendships. So I think those friendships really sustain you uh, in a war zone where after you file, you know that you can go knock on somebody's door and sit down and talk to them or have dinner with them or, or get a drink or whatever, just so some way to, to, to sort of get your mind off and, and process what you've seen. So I think those friendships are, are um, the most important thing. Uh, but I would also say that um, no reporter um, has left, um, uh, the, if you've spent that much time in the Middle East, you don't leave unscarred. I mean, you know, we we carry those emotional scars. It's, uh, it's difficult to continuously um, uh, put yourself at risk uh, and and also cover and hear uh, the hardships that people are going through and, and their stories and, and remain uh, unaffected. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. Hi, my name is Mitch. I'm a first-year master student here. Um, the issue of covering ISIS, I think, highlights one of the consequences of major newspapers reducing the size of their direct hire staffs. Uh, we've seen countless journalists, unfortunately, beheaded and the many dangers of covering it as a freelance journalist. 
uh, somebody last semester, Jeff Goldberg, sat in the very same seat that you're sitting in now and said to us uh, that he would not recommend any journalists go to the region now and cover it, and that there's been a fundamental shift in the relationship mm -hmm. that journalists have between their work and the people that they cover. Mm -hmm. well, how do we deal with the responsibility that newsrooms have to really get the correct story about what's going on there with the many dangers that journalists are now facing trying to cover a crisis in particular in Syria and Iraq? So security trumps everything else, yeah. right? Uh, I share Jeffrey Goldberg's um, sentiment in that, um, you know, when young freelancers ask me what should we do, I try very hard not to encourage them. Um, in fact, I try to discourage them from taking the risk and going into a, a place like um, rebel-controlled Syria, for example. Um, but, um, but people still do. I think one way that almost no news organization now will um, send, uh, certainly like traditional media or established media, you know, the, the main, we don't send freelancers into, we don't send staff. If we're not sending staff, we don't send freelancers for liability reasons and for reasons that you mentioned freelancers getting beheaded and, and kidnapped and killed. Um, so the idea is that no story is worth your life, right? But, uh, and, and we try to deal with the, with, with the very real um, gap that that creates in our, in our news coverage. And we try to fill that by having more experienced seasonal reporters who at least understand the context, because it would be very hard to, to send um, or assign a, a fairly new reporter to the beat and say, you can't go on the ground and talk to people and see for yourself, uh, but you also have to figure out what's happening. So, so we, you know, you mostly have seasoned reporters uh, who've spent many years in the Middle East um, trying to write those analytical pieces. Um, to the extent that I think there's been uh, unique and fantastic reporting out of these places, it's been done by freelancers who have risked their lives. I mean, there's a, a freelancer named Matthew Atkins who just um, did this amazing piece. He embedded with um, uh, medical Syrian uh, medical emergency respondents um, who, who were treating um, rebels uh, and from the front lines and he was there at great risk to himself but it was a story that was we would have never gotten if, if freelancers hadn't <coughs> taken those kind of risks so you know we they're doing really great work but um, at their own risk yeah questions yes in the same vein, uh, uh, Charlie Sennett's work uh, from mm -hmm. Post. Right. I, I began the name of it. It's Ground something. Ground Truth, I think, right? Yeah. Ground Truth Project? Yeah. Yes. Where, where they're trying to set up guidelines for uh, journalists to have some safety. Mm -hmm. When they go to cover war zone. Do you think that's having any impact? Do you think that's, that's one way to go to try to help journalists? I mean, I, I think that project is very new for us to see uh, an impact. But, um, look, I think no matter how much security you have, if you have a GPS tractor, if you have a security guard with you, if, if you're surrounded by militants who are um, determined to behead you or kidnap you, that's just, <laughs> it's, you, you can't really protect yourself. It's um, giving information. Yeah, giving, I, but I think it's important to train them. Look, when I, went to, when I went to Afghanistan, I didn't receive any training. Five years after the beheading of, of my colleague Daniel Pearl, most news organizations were uh, giving reporters hostile environment training, just so we know how to handle ourselves uh, in those kind of areas. So, so even within a few years with Iraq, that had changed. 
So I, I think it's, you, you know, you constantly negotiate what you can and what you can't do. Um, certainly the, the more training that a freelancer receives, the better, but I don't think anything can really protect you from that kind of threat. Yeah, Nick. Curious about Iranian domestic politics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I know it's not an active conflict zone, so maybe you haven't been reporting. No, as I, as I, have, I write about Iran very uh, frequently, so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you could just talk a little bit about that as we kind of are coming up on this deadline and mm -hmm. you know it's 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 interesting to see our domestic politics with right. 47 senators writing a letter uh, <laughs> and all, all that but I'd be interested to kind of understand the dynamics about uh, uh, domestic politics in Iran and whether, whether that that is uh, making it possible to, to, to get a deal done or whether that will preclude a deal being done um, so um Grand policies in Iran, such as nuclear negotiations or a nuclear deal or um, Iran's role in a place like Syria or Iraq, these are all determined very much above the government and the president's uh, level. They're determined by the supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei. And uh, from everything we can gather, he um, has given the green light for the negotiating team to reach a deal. Um, and. I think from covering, you know, I've been covering Iran for two decades now, I think that the um, reality of sanctions and falling uh, oil prices um, uh, are, are making it very difficult uh, for the Iranian regime to sustain uh, itself. Um, they also understand that they have a, a, a real dissent in the country. They've got, um, you know, the Green Revolution or the Green Movement or uprising of 2009 was crushed but it did not go away, right? It, it did not disappear. We, you still have dissidents, you still have reformers, you have many people who are upset. What the, what the regime is trying to, to hold off is to have, um, you know, an, an opposition that is united, uh, not just politically, but financially, by sort of the working class people who are fed up with the inflation and, and higher prices. And I think getting a nuclear deal is essential to that in, in controlling sort of uh, the economy. Uh, the disastrous economy in Iran. Uh, so it seems that for the ver for the first time that Iran genuinely wants a deal. Um, I think just like in the U.S., um, there are um, hardliners or uh, uh, you know sort of like ultra conservative elements uh, or factions with, within Iran who do not want a, a deal. Who uh, just like the 47 senators you mentioned, you know some of the the hardliners kind of mirror uh, one another. Um, everywhere in, in both countries. I think it was President Obama who said it's very curious that they, um, that these um, Republican senators have s sort of, you know, have so much in common now with the Iranian hardliners. Um, <laughs> um, so they are trying to undermine, uh, undermine a deal. Uh, but, you know, but there is a supreme leader who can tell them, you know, enough you know in the past couple of weeks during the Friday prayer in Tehran which is really a great way to understand sort of what the regime is thinking because the person who delivers it is typically very close to, to Khamenei um, they've been praising the nuclear negotiations they've been praising the team they've been asking people to support them uh, and to respect all their hard efforts um, so I think there is a will it's just a matter of um, what Iran will get in exchange. I think any deal that does not promise Iran some relief of sanctions, they're not going to accept because this is their big incentive to get sanctions lifted. Yeah. Yes? Hi. Um, 
I want to continue on Iran. Yeah. When you were four years old, mm -hmm. I was a guest of the Empress of Iran. Oh, wow. <laughs> and spent two weeks there at a meeting called Iran Past, Present, and Future. Mm -hmm. um, it was quite an experience. I've just started to write about it. I've got a lot of pictures. And I've gone back and I've read, I'm starting to read the book that was written from the papers that were given at this meeting. It was called 100 World Leaders. And then there were five women because they'd forgotten to ask women and the Empress was the host and five of us got added at the last minute. Uh, no one person anticipated that the change would come from the right. Mm -hmm. All of this was going on with the cassettes and the Ayatollahs totally under the radar. The whole Farman Famayan family was there. They had no idea. Hobeda had no idea. Now my source is Anthony Bourdain on his cooking program. That was a great <laughs> show. <laughs> Wasn't that a great show? Yeah. They did a program the Iran on Iran, yeah. which is one of the most spectacular mm -hmm. programs. Mm -hmm. And again, you see the public is nowhere near the leaders. Yes. And I would love to know in this mirror image what you think is going on, and if this exciting, bright, attractive young public in any way is like the public that I saw all those years ago, you would be very you would be very surprised if you went to Iran today because Iran is is, is has become an urban uh, a, a very urban society. I mean, most I think almost seventy percent of the country now lives in urban areas. It's um, uh, they're literate. Um, Sixty percent of college um, univer or university students are women. Women are a big part of the workforce, so it's become very urbanized. And and I think um, one of the things that we have to be fair and give credit to the Islamic Republic uh, has been uh, sort of this push to um, to modernize rural areas and to t get education and healthcare. Um, particularly to women, because what's happened in, in the case of I Iranian women is that they were, um, after the revolution, conservative families felt like it was safe to send their um, daughters mm -hmm. to university and to the workforce because they, they were going to be veiled and, and it was more of a um, segregated society. Well, those women who've become, you know, conservative women who became educated, who entered the workforce, are now asking for equal rights, right? They have become a force of change from within. Um, and it's a very interesting dynamic. Um, I Iran's also very connected. I think they're um, one of the top users of, of internet and, and social media in the world. Uh, so the young population is very connected through satellite, through social media with, with the world. And they're genuinely curious. They want to end the isolation. They are probably the most pro-American population you will meet in the Middle East. So they are, I feel the majority of Iranians are out of sync with the leadership in the way that they're very eager to engage with the world. They're eager to exchange ideas, to travel, to open up the society and sort of end this isolation because the Iranians are not um, extremists by nature. Um, I don't think what happens um, in Syria or in other parts can happen in Iran. Uh, just because people are not, uh, they, they don't have, a, they, they want to, they want change, but they want to achieve it in, in a very moderate and in a very quiet way. They, um, 
you know, they they look at the events in the Middle East and they say, no, we that's not what we want. We don't want institutional breakdown. We don't want security to break down. Even if the price is living with this regime, but we would rather have security. We would rather have um, our country as a whole than than have it go the way that Syria and Iraq and and Yemen now is going. Yeah. Yes. Hi, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the events, the bombings in Yemen and Tunisia and what their significance is. Is it, is it sort of the last chapter of the Arab Spring? Is that, can, can I think the Syria, the, the, the Tunisia was definitely, uh, you know, it, uh, was one of the places that everybody signaled out and said this is this is the one example where the Arab Spring has worked or you know the, the one place where we don't see extremists. Um, I don't want to rush to judgment and say that, that Tunisia is a failed enterprise yet because you know terrorist uh, attacks can happen anywhere they've attacked it they've happened in the US they've happened in, in Europe um, uh, but it certainly uh, gives everybody a great concern see it really are, is ISIS really um, uh, you know, gaining momentum in, in Tunisia, I mean, in Yemen, uh, particularly. I think it sort of goes back to the to what I was saying earlier. These conflicts are no longer localized; they've become uh, regionalized. You know, they've sort of become like the, as you said, the thirty-day war. One of the things the, the United States could do would be to help bolster Tunisia. Yes, financially. absolutely, right. Is yeah. that not happening? <coughs> I don't. I, I'm not. I'm not. Um, I haven't followed mm. how they've. Uh, You've been working with the IMF on local Yeah, countries. but mm. but I think the U.S. can also, you know, use the political influence mm. it has to um, <coughs> to support sort of the moderate. Well, I mean, I know that I know that the, after this bombing, the the tourism business. At I'm sure it's going to fall off. Like so. it's happened in Egypt, you know. And then that would lead more young people to terrorism because if they don't have jobs, if they don't have employment, then you know they become disillusioned. Where are they going to go? To you know? Sure. So. Yes. Uh, it's ironic that uh, the French defense minister lost her job at the start of the Arab revolt in, in Tunisia by saying that the French could help the Tunisians uh, to in terms of internal mm -hmm. security. Uh, this is Tunisia's problem. It's a tiny country. It doesn't have the capability to uh, ward off terrorism, right. uh, unlike Algeria or Morocco. Right. So uh, I think they have a serious problem, and of course tourism is tourism central, right? But I, to get back to Iran, uh, I understand that the uh, supreme leader is ill. He's quite ill. He's had an operation. Apparently, according to uh, tradition or doctrine, he can't be knocked out because otherwise he loses roles. But the point is this, uh, Rouhani has uh, equivalent religious credentials to the Supreme Leader, and uh, do you think it is possible, I mean, that people are talking about this, that he could become the Supreme Leader, in which case he might change the role of the Valaya Ifaki? I am... Um Mr. Rouhani is not, I don't think he's a marja, I don't think he's a grand ayatollah, um, as far as I know. Neither was Khamenei. Neither was Khamenei, but they made, a, if you remember, the, the, the uh, expediency council, which picks the security, I think they um, made a change and made him um, expedited, expedited um, his um, credentials to, to make him. They, um, I think a few weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago, they uh, they picked um, a, a very conservative cleric as the head of this council that picks um, the next 
Ali Afaqi, who were the next supreme leader in Iran. Uh, and that was kind of a sign that, um, you know, whatever happens in post Khamenei or whoever comes next will probably be um, a, a very conservative person. Um, I think one of the thing, realities in, in Iran that perhaps um, the West, people in the West don't realize is that I Iran is no longer a clerical regime. You know, it's uh, the Revolutionary Guards dominate Iranian politics, Iranian economy, Iranian foreign policy, um, everything, you know. Um, so I don't think that without, um, uh, and, and Khamenei is extremely close uh, with the guards. I mean, I think they're the ones who are holding him in power. Um, they, um, I mean, he takes his cue on domestic politics and foreign politics from um, the senior commanders of the Revolutionary Guards. So what what happens after Khamenei, I think, by and large, will depend on the guards, whether they really want to just put themselves as, as the central sort of power, or they would put somebody that, that, they could, that they're close to and, and pretty much run the country uh, from behind the scene. Is, yeah. is the assumption that they are the ones who are sympathetic to these negotiations? They are divided. Some of them are sympathetic, some of them are not sympathetic. But there's not a sort of position that the Revolutionary Guards... Are no, there's to. no position. Because they will follow whatever Khamenei says. And he has said for now that he supports the negotiations, so they haven't... Is there a and, and they because they control the economy, they know how bad it is. They know how, how, how much they need the sanctions to go away, because they can't, they can't, they can no longer um, keep things afloat if, if the sanctions continue the way that they have. Other questions? When you... Yes. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier that uh, in the United States we get um, so much negative press mm -hmm. from uh, from the Middle East. Uh, since you spent so much time there, are there positives that you could share with us? Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> this, this is such a bleak conversation. You know, I, I think um, for me some of the most um, uh, gratifying moments as, as a reporter has been, has been um, sort of um, encountering uh, the resilience in, in people and sort of that human spirit um, in war zones that, um, you know, no matter how hard life gets or, or how difficult or extreme, you, people still try to find a way uh, to live and, and try to, um, you know, um, live a dignified life. Uh, and um, I think that those are some of the uh, more positive stories. I think, you know, one of, one of my favorite was um, uh, you know, going to a wedding in, in Baghdad in the middle of the worst security zone where the, the bride had to go to the hairdresser at 6 a.m., although the wedding was <clears throat> in the afternoon because of security uh, measures. And, you know, um, the reception was held at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and they put sort of blackout curtains to make it dark and put a disco ball, and there were car bombs going off, but everybody was dancing. And <laughs> Um, and trying to have a good time. And, and I think those, um, the encounters with the people are, are, are what makes this job rewarding and trying to, to reflect some of those voices. Um, you know, the women in Afghanistan who, um, the teachers, you know, I, I will never forget interviewing uh, this one teacher who had been banned from teaching because they, they weren't allowed uh, to be in the workforce. Um, and she had turned her basement into uh, a secret school for the little girls in the neighborhood. And they would come in different times because she was so afraid that if the Taliban in the neighborhood figure out that there was a flood of little girls coming to her house, 
um, in the basement without any windows. She had educated all the neighborhood girls for five years, taking them from first grade to fifth grade, because she had thought that if I don't do this, we're going to have an illiterate generation of, of girls growing up. Um, so seeing those kind of things is, is um, yeah. There is good news. <laughs> if you if you will look at the New York Times uh, online, mm -hmm. they yes. yesterday ran centerpiece a, a, a video called "Our Man in Iran," mm -hmm. and it's a, a, a sort of a personal beginning of a personal series about the Times, a Dutchman who is the Times uh, reporter in Tehran, has been there for many years, and it's really about life as it is lived now today in Iran. It was fascinating. It was not hard news, mm -hmm. but it was really fascinating. Yes. A friend of, of, of yours, of course. Of friend, yeah. um, but I think that uh, it gives a different perspective on the way life is actually lived in mm -hmm. Tehran anyway. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, in addition to all of the dangers and other uh, obstacles that journalists today face in covering conflicts, especially involving mm -hmm. the U.S. military, is the incredible apparatus of the U.S. military's PR machine. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, you know, this war is so much different in terms of access from our last major war, the Vietnam mm -hmm. War. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it's like dealing with the U.S. military. Yes. So, um, so, so in, in Iraq and in Afghanistan, if you embed with the military, you have um, to follow a certain, uh, certain guidelines. Uh, the, the you know the public affairs person stays with you and and they ask you um, not to send any picture if you if you happen to be in an attack you can't send any pictures of soldiers who've been injured or uh, uh, have died and this and that and they make it very clear that if you violate um, any of these rules you will be kicked out of off the embed and in in many instances it, it happened to me once uh, where um, if you leave, they have this idea that because they take you on an embed and because they protect you, which they do, then they expect you to write something positive uh, of the experience or glorify the role. Um, sometimes you write that, sometimes you don't. Sometimes the, the stories are critical, as in all journalism. It's not always the same. And if it, in, in, in both Iraq and Afghanistan, if you wrote something critical about, you, about what you saw on that particular embed, um, you were, um, you know, in the doghouse. It, it, not just you, but your organization. I think they, they, they didn't like something I'd written about the capture, the, the, the process of, that went into the capturing of Saddam Hussein. And for three months, the Wall Street Journal could not get an impact. Um, and, um, uh, you know, one of my very good f friends, Chris Honduras, the pho photojournalist who died in Libya, um, or was killed in Libya, uh, was on a U U.S. military embed. I encourage you all to, to, to look up this. I think it's one of the most iconic photos of the Iraq war. He was on an embed with the U.S. military. They were at a checkpoint. He thought it was a regular, you know, night checkpoint. A car approached, and uh, I think the Americans started shouting in English uh, for, for them to stop. And, of course, the, the guy sitting in the car with the windows closed, they didn't hear them, so they opened fire. They opened fire. They killed everybody. When um, when they went up there, they saw that it was a family with five children, and everyone everyone had been killed except a two-year-old. Makes me choke up. And she had um, blood all over her um, dress, and she was standing there in a pool of blood, screaming. And he got this shot, and it was the front page of every news organization. He was immediately um, 
shoved off the embed. He was, um, you know, accused of not being patriotic, of not respecting the U.S. military. So it's, um, you know, that access comes with a lot of uh, strings. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so in my lifetime, I've seen a few um, countries that were vilified uh, mm -hmm. beyond belief, China. Right. Red China. I mean, I grew up when that was. Right. Um, and, uh, and almost overnight, the drop of ping pong, basically, uh, coverage changed entirely. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it was an amazing new world of people who were fascinating and interesting and extremely positive. And I've seen this a few times. Um, do you think, given today's uh, political environment, um, that if and when we get a deal with, uh, with Iran, whether there's any possibility that we'll see this sort of paradigm flip? I have already seen that paradigm flip. Look at, look at Cuba. Yeah, yo, Cuba. I've, I've already, <laughs> I think since the negotiations went into full force, since for the, I think for the past year, I have noticed that the coverage of Iran has, uh, you know, Iran is much less vilified. I think since Ahmadinejad um, went out of the way, and um, you know, you have a, a new, much more moderate uh, president in, in Mr. Rouhani, the coverage of Iran and sort of this perception of I Iran as uh, as the pariah uh, of the world, I think, has already shifted, um, uh, and it probably will. Um, you know, if if there is a deal, um, yeah. Why is, it, why is it that there are no gay people in Iran? <laughs> <laughs> how did that go over when you... Oh, my... Um, how did it go over? Well, I, th I think, you know, people people always joke that what are we going to do when Ahmadinejad le leaves office? Who are we going to laugh at? You know, who's going to make... Um, there were so many jokes about him. Um, you know, I think you can put that in the same you know, in the same box of like denying Holocaust. He just lived to make provocative statements and, and say things that would grab headlines, you know. I thought, like, there was no truth to it, obviously. Yes. They also have the most sex change operations. They do, um, so partly. Well, I mean, interestingly, the Shia faith is, is different than the Sunni faith in the way that um, um, that the religion is allowed to reform itself or, or um, come up with new provisions of, of how things are practiced. So um, there, uh, there, there is permission or a fatwa that, that um, people can have se sex change. They can, they can um, and uh, as Laudan says, a lot of um, gay people are forced to do that because that's probably the only way. They actually give them, as they're going through the operation, they give them a card, the government gives them a card that they carry in their pockets, so they, if, if it's a man who looks feminine, they're not harassed on the street, or, or vice versa. Um, but uh, but like any other country, I mean, there are plenty of gays, uh, lesbians in Iran. I mean, I, I know many of them, so it's not. Yeah. <laughs> how, <laughs> yes. does, how does Israel fit in this whole picture? And will the tensions between Israel and Iran, will they subside? How real are those tensions? Is Israel really aided in Iran, or is it just government propaganda, or what is the real situation? Despite the government rhetoric, I, I never, I, I don't think that I Iran wants to get into a war with Israel. It I doesn't seem like there, there is any policy to eradicate uh, Israel off the face of the earth or anything like that. 
but but they um, you know but they do um, they really do support the Palestinian cause and and um, they arm and fund Hezbollah, which is a concern for Israel and Hamas. And uh, so I don't think those tensions are going to go away. But um, I mean, we we see now sort of this push by um, Netanyahu to try to derail the talks in uh, in what, you know any way that he can. Uh, because I think you know, if if the if the negotiations go forth, if Iran and the U.S. Uh, you know manage to have a, a friendlier relationship, if if the you know commerce opens up, then um, then they lose this puppet enemy um, in the Middle East, and I don't know how that will so play what, in. What will happen, do you think, if there is no deal? If there is no deal. Uh, I think if there is no deal, there will, there will, um, Iran will open up the centrifuges and continue with its program. Um, I mean, I don't know if they're, um, uh, you know, we, I don't know if they're going to build a bomb. I mean, there's no evidence that they are, but I don't think they're going to curtail their nuclear program if there's no deal. Um, I think that at, at whatever cost they're going to continue and that, and it will. Well, then it depends on how the U.S. reacts. Uh, are we going to get into another war? Is is there? Is it going to just? You know, depends who. Much of it depends on the reaction from the U.S. It sounds like the only I way that things that deal. are terrible could get worse. <laughs> yes, yeah. I hope there's a deal. Yeah, but last just one, two quick foot, uh, footnotes of journalism. Back to Anthony Bourdain and mm -hmm. that fantastic program on Iran. The Washington Post journalist who was interviewed by him was jailed yes. and is still in jail. Yes. And I, does the press know he's been branded a traitor? Why? And then just another footnote on the Israel thing. The former head of Mossad spoke really eloquently about Iran. He's fluent in Farsi and said that is without a doubt the most well-educated, brilliant group of people mm -hmm. in that whole part of the world. But go back for the Washington Post. And what was your question about Jason? Do we know where he is? Why was he arrested after? Journalists are arrested all the time in Iran. I mean, they're. Um, I, he he. I don't think he was arrested because he wrote anything in particular. You know, I don't. He he mostly wrote features. He mm -hmm. he didn't really do any hard-hitting investigative reports that would um, anger the government or the regime. Um, but you know, reporters are especially those who work for um, American news organizations or dual nationals are always at risk. I mean, he's before still in jail. he's still in jail. He's the longest dual national who's been in jail. Um, and uh, uh, there's also a former American Marine, an Iranian American Marine who's in jail. He's been in jail, I think, for two years now. Um, so they're part of I think Iran has different incentives. Sometimes they want to exchange prisoners with the U.S. Sometimes they want to have a, a bargaining chip in the negotiations. Sometimes they do it for domestic politics. It's, um, it is very seldom um, because that person was a real threat. We've yeah. come to the end of our time. <laughs> I, next uh, week we go back to our regular schedule on Tuesday, and we'll have Juliet Kayyem, who will be our guest. Farnas, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>